I'm really, I'm really pleased to be here at um, St. Vincent's. Um, I feel like I've been hearing about it forever. Uh, my brother-in-law came here, well, was an undergrad here about 400 years ago. That's what he told us at, at dinner tonight. Um, um, but I've been hearing it through Mark Rossi since, uh, since, since we met uh, years ago. And um, his, uh, his uh, a son went here, here uh, and worked here, went to various basketball camps over the years. Uh, his family is from Pittsburgh. Uh, so it's finally, it was great to finally come here and, and, uh, and visit the school. And it is a really a wonderful, uh, wonderful campus and environment. Um, what I thought I'd do tonight is read uh, various poems. Um, a few from the latest book, The Unemployed Man Who Became a Tree, which came out a couple of months ago. And then I'm going to read some, um, some poems from a, uh, a collection that will be out in, in 2013, a new and selected book. So there'll be new poems that I've never read before, and a few older poems as well. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, uh, I got a, um, an email from a, an editor from an online magazine, and he said, we're doing a, a theme on uh, poets who had held unusual jobs over the years, uh, or in your past. Um, and uh, we, we love your work, and we think you would be perfect for our magazine, anything you can give us, we'll be thrilled to have. So I thought about it, and I realized I, I, I never had any, uh, any unusual jobs. Uh, I've taught unusual students, but no unusual jobs. So I came up with something, and I sent it off to him. And uh, he, he emailed it back to me the next day, and he rejected it. You know, and, and he said, this is what we had in mind at all. But I ended up really uh, enjoying the poem so much that I made it the title of the uh, latest collection, and. and uh, and it also ended up in another magazine, so there's a happy ending there. But the poem is called The Unemployed Man Who Became a Tree. And the only thing you should know, I, I referenced Charlie Parker. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's a, uh, the innovative uh, sax uh, a jazz player, sort of innovated bebop in the late 40s and early 50s. And um, his nickname was Bird because he'd go out in, in the backyard and he'd listen, listen to the, birds that, you know, the music that the birds made, he'd say. And, and if you see any old photos of him playing his sax, his, his fingers actually move like birds. You know? So I referenced Charlie Parker in this particular poem. It's called The Unemployed Man Who Became a Tree. I lost my last job in July, then spent the rest of the summer working on a tan. With little money left, I searched the want ads until coming across an opening for a tree. The spot was just a few blocks away, near the path that runs along the river. I hurried over to the square patch of dirt and the concrete where the city cut the last tree down, then stood on it, looked around, liked the area, and decided to take the position. Within minutes, my legs went stiff as my feet began to root the soil. My arms branched out, skin became bark. The paper didn't say what kind of tree was needed, although my limbs looked maple, from the waist down I was all oak. By evening, I was just about done, and even began thinking like wood. How to bud April green enough to get spring going early this year. The only bird I ever cared about was Charlie Parker. Now, I wanted a flock to rest on my limbs, build a nest on the highest branch, that sprouted from my ear, a place to call home, a place safe from cats. 
By evening, the fog that crawled in on its knees was gone, and there I was alone, holding up the moon in my branch, shaped like a right hand for the entire city to see, smiling. I live in Manhattan, and um, Sarah Lawrence, is where I teach, is about 35 minutes by car outside the city. And uh, I got a ride up one day, and it had rained. It was in April. It had rained a couple of days. And on the side of the West Side Highway, there was a sign that said, Caution, Depressed Drain Pipes Ahead. So it was sort of strange, I thought. Why not put those depressed drain pipes in group therapy? <laughs> They'd be happier, would be safer. Um, so I started thinking about therapy, not the drain pipes, and I came up with this particular poem. It's called Therapy. Once, it was easier to love an entire country rather than just one person. Then you met a girl who chewed gum that snapped in her mouth like tiny firecrackers. Each day you spent with her was the 4th of July. And the first night you slept together was the only time in your life you felt patriotic. You spent too much time thinking about the past, though sometimes it just can't be helped. When the weather report said the temperature would reach the 60s over the next few days, it made you go home and take out your old Beatle albums and play them all week. Therapy is helping you deal more and accept what's going on around you now. So when another magazine with a member of the royal family on the cover, you see and you get disgusted on the money wasted on them, you have to remind yourself how you always wanted to be the next king of swing. You are also learning to make peace with the fact that when the doorbell rings, the poodle in the apartment next door will always bark in French instead of English. And how the car horns and heavy traffic along First Avenue and rush hour are beginning to sound more and more like Gershwin every day. Um, this next poem um, I thought I don't know if I should read this or not. Um, uh, I think Father Rene is here, so maybe you should put your hands over your ears, all right, just for, until I finish, okay? Um, it's called uh, Afterlife. Now, I, had, I was reading um, a biography of uh, William James, uh, Henry's brother, and he's a philosopher and psychologist. And I came across this line that he supposedly said, and he said, um, uh, the concept of, of the soul is a metaphor for man wanting more. So perhaps this isn't enough that we have here, um, but perhaps there's nothing else. Um, so I think the speaker in this particular poem uh, has decided that maybe James is right. Maybe there is no migration of the soul. But more importantly, it's how you, you mourn that can be more detrimental to your health, health than anything else. And it's called afterlife. My parents were right about an afterlife. Even though they died six years ago, I talk to them every day. Tonight, they're in their living room while I'm in bed with a woman I met in a bar. They're waiting patiently for me. My mom is ironing the pants I flung on the couch, making sure the creases are sharp enough to cut into the apple pie she made me as a kid. My dad sits with the newspaper in his favorite chair, the one I took from their house after it was sold. He likes to open to the obituaries these days, just glad he's not in them anymore. 
The woman I'm sweating over was the hottest thing I ever saw just a few drinks ago and still is as long as I keep my eyes closed. Her legs keep slapping against my thighs, so I stay on top of her, afraid if I get off, she'll begin to fly and bang her head against the wall. If I knew her name, I'd, I'd use it, tell her things like, it's almost time to stop. In a couple of minutes, we give up instead. Neither of us could come, and when it is clear she isn't going to go, I have to ask her to. She gets up, searches for her clothes scattered around the floor as if they exploded. The sweat on her body could be greased the way she slides into things, then looks in the mirror to fluff up her hair with her fingertips. No matter how hard she tries, it still hangs like the curtains I've been meaning to buy for the bedroom window. I don't even try to explain why I need her to leave, that my parents could never be in the next room after the way cancer ate, or how I have so much to discuss with them now that I found out what it really means to be dead. Um, this next poem is a new poem from the selected work that will be out uh, next year sometime. Um, but I, I just realized, after reading the last poem, maybe I should have read this one next. This is called Viagra. I didn't plan it. Uh, Viagra. I walk to the end of the block to get a better look at the river. Where the sun reaches for waves, diamonds float. A tug slowly pushes a barge, scattering some as others rattle towards the river's bank. Gulls flutter and slide over the tug's bow, like whitecaps waves lost in strong wind. The apartment across the way is how people walk on other people's heads without falling off. The building in the back is as tall as I am, since we stand eye to roof. I just signed a new lease to my apartment for another year, and had to write my name in black ink, making it look like the New York City skyline at night. The factory to the left must be manufacturing Viagra, to keep its smokestack erect for so long without going limp. I realize this is not a view for everyone. That's why I'm taking it to the diner two blocks over and ask the cook, who I know, to place it on the menu in between pork chops and brisket so anyone can see it's one of the day's specials. Um, my niece, who's actually at the University of Miami now, which sort of blows my mind a little bit. Um, but when she was three or four years old, she, like all little kids, the world was new, the language was even newer. Um, and um, it was great to have conversations with her. And one time she showed me a coloring book. She's point, pointing out different animals. You know, that's an eagle, that, that's a dog, that's an armadillo. So I just went to the next page. Uh, and, and then one time she said, you know, she's, I'm ashamed to say I used to smoke, and she saw me smoking, and she said, stamped her foot and said, don't you know that if you smoke, you're going to go to Kansas? <laughs> and that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> um, so, and she, she loves stories. She still does. She's a wonderful writer herself, or becoming a wonderful writer. Um, she loves stories loves, and loves language. That's where it all begins, the love of language. Not that you want to tell a story or hear a story. But um, 
so I would go over and, and, and tell her stories all the time. And then she, um, and that was great for a while, and then this other problem came up out of nowhere way too soon. And this is what this poem is about. It's called Boys Can't Be Trusted. My niece likes to sit on my lap every time I visit. When she wants me to make up a story rather than read it from a book, she'll say, read me a story from your mouth. I've been quite prolific with titles like The Fur Tree That Wore Imitation Fur, The Turtle Who Made Calls on His Shell Phone, and The Poet Trees in the Forest. My niece likes to hear about boys who get into trouble since girls are smarter and nicer. So I decided to add some disguised autobiographical sketches. Two favorites from the boy series are the dumb boy in math class. The boy who, could, ba who could balance a basketball on his finger but couldn't balance a checkbook. So I was surprised when she told me about the boys in her preschool class. Michael Chickatelli is very smart and knows everything about dinosaurs. Paulie Floater has been showing her tricks on his yo-yo that only he can do. And Walt Wheeler's father is Walt Disney. How could I tell her this is how it starts? These little creeps can't even spell their names but already have lines to get over on a pretty girl. <laughs> Next, they'll be ringing her doorbell dressed in expensive clothes. They're European sports cars with names nobody can pronounce parked in her driveway and bring her jewelry they'll want to give her, then kiss across her neck. I couldn't let these guys get away with this, and later would have to talk to her father. But until then, and since my niece was still curled up on my lap, I began a new story, new story called Why Boys Who Like Dinosaurs Yo-Yo Tricks and Say Their Fathers Are Famous Are Liars and Can't Be Trusted. Um, my mom, uh, my mom was, was a great mom, loved being a mom, loved having her kids. As a matter of fact, my mom, I think, would have liked it for us to live there forever, my three brothers and my sister. Um, if she had one weakness, it was clothes. She just loved clothes. I don't think I ever saw her, you know, wear the same dress twice. Um, and. and and she, she was, re she came to, the, uh, you know, with this moral dilemma came up. When my brother was going to leave the house for the first time, move out of the house, she was really upset about it. She didn't want to go. And I heard her say to my dad, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't want him to leave. And then she paused for a few minutes and said, but I could really use the closet space. <laughs> you know? um, so this is called my mother's clothes. My mother liked to wait until after dinner and say to my dad that she couldn't possibly attend some special event that was coming up since she had nothing at all to wear. My father liked to point out that she had three large closets filled with clothes, some outfits she wore only once or never at all. She also had enough shoes for an army or whenever the Marines needed to go off to battle in pumps. She would just stare into her cup filled with tea the color of a good tan until he'd say, go out tomorrow and buy a new dress. Then he'd reach into his pocket, try not to smile and say, his arm was arthritic from years of reaching back for his wallet to give her money for clothes. 
And he was convinced after reading in the paper that Gimbel's department store was filing for Chapter 11 because my mother stopped shopping there three months earlier. Two months after my father died, my mother bought her last dress during a heat wave. And in the middle of tumors, we didn't know were growing in her stomach. This time, it was my sister who decided my mother should wear that pink outfit at her wake. When I walked into the funeral home and up to the casket, I decided she looked great. The color of her dress was vibrant, alive, and her hair was the color of the gold coins I would have paid just to bring her back. I started to think that maybe she was just sleeping. So rather than say a prayer, I leaned over and whispered in her ear, Mom, there's a sale at Bloomingdale's tonight. But rather than open her eyes, jump up and say, let's go, you drive, she just lay there. She didn't move. She didn't say a thing. This is another new poem from the new and selected book. It's called Long as a Quart of Milk. Once I undressed a tree and got a splinter in my thumb and decided that's it for one night stands. The woman next door who dresses in clothes that make her look like the English countryside keeps yelling at her son about being spoiled. I wish I could help him out, tell her, of course he's spoiled, it's hot out. So she should keep him in a room with the air conditioner on. It would keep him fresh longer, or at least as long as a quart of milk. I rent a small studio in the tenement building next door that looks like Lou Reed. I've lived there for a while and have no plans of moving. There really isn't any point now that I know this neighborhood so well I can recite any street by heart to anyone who will listen. You know, I, I live in Manhattan and it has a lot of a lot of floors of course, but of course, but it, landscape basically informs my own writing. So um, there's no such thing as writer's block. All I have to do is just look out the window, see something, and write about it. The difficult part is to decide what you want to write about. Um, and this is another poem. It was actually from the first book, Spirit Change. And I, haven't, I've, I don't think I've ever read this book, this particular poem. Um, it's called In the Bar on Second. You sit in a bar on Second Avenue with a woman you want, but notice the distance in her eyes has an extra mile that even another drink could never help you reach. Ashes eat slowly down a cigarette towards her fingers, the way you would if she just take you home later and let you burn. She stares at the band and the guitar player who heats the blues with his riffs. When the drummer slides his brushes across the snare, it reminds you how you slid through the last few years, how most nights weren't worth the dark it took to get through them. And each time dawn was the prize, you turned it down and held on to your sweat instead. Now you want to tell this woman that life is shorter than her skirt without its style. As soon as the next song ends, you want to begin over with her. Learn to love the way she tilts her head every time she whispers. Be gentle with her body that up to now has only kept you thirsty. When two guys in the next booth get louder, you consider taking them on to prove your strength. But no, the only thing you want to lick tonight are her legs. 
After another drink, you realize that even if she didn't need you, there was a lot to be thankful for. The way your eyes have begun to blur. Now the horn player with a good lip, the last song of the night, blows your past clean. Two more poems. This next one is, is, is also a new poem that will be in this selected work. Um, and it's about an, uh, a very early humiliation. It's called Francine Perone on Ice. I bought an old piano from the guy in the apartment above mine after I got him to throw in black keys for free. Too bad the dog lying underneath it like a cashew wasn't for sale. I would have bought him too. I tried playing the piano by ear, but kept hurting the side of my head. So I'm thinking of taking lessons. There's a playground with a skating rink on 7th Avenue. It reminded me when I was a kid in first grade how I fell on the one near my home and the way Francine Perrone skated around me, giggling as I crawled off. My face was red as the skirt around her waist that flared out like an umbrella. After that, there was no way I could ask her to marry me the next day in recess like I planned. <laughs> Years later, another girl laughed at me too, but I made sure I wasn't on all fours or anywhere near thin ice. Ever since I heard a friend of mine jump from a bridge near Spokane so he wouldn't have to show up for work on Monday, I won't fly west and only take part-time jobs. Except for all the noise, clouds rubbing against the sky, cats walking, the war taking place inside the novel on my desk, cold beers losing their heads in the bar on the corner, I like it here. And I don't let things get to me the way they once did. When my ex wrote to say, the weeping willow in the back of the place we shared stopped crying as soon as I left and has never looked better, <laughs> I admit it bothered me for a few minutes. Only a few. Just one more poem. Um, my dad, we were just talking about Ireland. My dad was born in Kiladima, Galway, which meant my brothers and I thought the Holy Land referred to Dublin for years. Yeah. Um, but he, we always said that he had this, uh, we call it leprechaun uh, syndrome. He liked everything that was big. You know, he liked big things. Uh, nothing small worked. Luckily, my brothers were big guys, so he was able to forgive me my shortcomings. Yeah. Um, and but we, we had all kinds of animals growing up. Uh, do you like cats? Really? I can't stand them actually. But um, he, um, he he brought a cat home. He had dogs, lizards, you, you name it. My sister had lizards too. Um, but he, he brought home this cat, and like all the other animals, um, he would feed them these concoctions of food that were really uh, quite uh, awful to smell. And he'd, he'd say, well, you know, this is really great because, you know, so-and-so is going to get big. You know, Seamus, our dog, Seamus will get huge when he eats this. And, and you know, our, our, our dog Rocky will become the biggest dog on the block. So when he brought home this cat, same thing. You know, he started making these weird concoctions saying he's going to be the biggest cat on the block, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and for a while it worked. You know, he'd, he'd put the uh, food out in the backyard, the cat would eat it, you know, and my father would watch him grow. And, uh, but then he stopped eating the food. And um, 
couldn't quite figure it out, but he was still getting big, and muscular looking as well. So uh, one day, uh, my mom went out in the backyard, and she just screamed, you know, you thought somebody was being murdered. And we went outside, and there was a, uh, a squirrel by the steps, and its head was removed. But the rest of the squirrel was there. So uh, a couple of days later, same thing. There was a squirrel, no head. So Lefty kind of looked around and decided, well, you know, it's time to thin the herd. There were a lot of squirrels running around. He was going to, you know, eat these uh, uh, animals and, and give them to us as a gift, I guess. You know, and uh, or maybe you think we need more protein in our diet or something. But 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 he he, he I think we counted about 75 squirrels that he killed. And he'd do the same thing with birds. You know, he'd eat birds. And and, and so you know you know there's nothing we can really do about it. And and then um, we started to hear fights at night. You know, and, and he'd he'd come back. If, you ever hear a cat fight at night? It's really quite frightening. You know, and uh, he, he would come back and um, he'd have a gash in his forehead. You know. And, and then when it started to heal, get into another fight. So the gash never healed. And then he'd come back, and, and his ear was bent over. He looked totally like Mike Tyson. His ear was bent over. And, uh, and so that went on for a while. And then uh, um, there was the stinky murder case. Uh, this woman across the way uh, said that our cat left. He killed her cat, Stinky. It was never proven. <laughs> So, um, but that introduction is probably longer than the poem. Um, but the poem is called The Cat That Could Fly. The cat we had as kids never ate the food we gave him. Instead, he hunted the backyard, grew heavy on sparrow and robins. When he spotted small birds, he'd freeze, even in August, turn concrete. Stone twitched more. Then he'd pounce, his jaws filled with thrashing wings, as if his mouth is going to fly away from his head. The day he killed a squirrel and left the body like a dead Cossack at our back doorstep, our mother's scream made trees rustle. At night in winter, we heard him fight other cats. In summer, it sounded like tires spinning on ice. The gash in his forehead never healed. His ear was shaped like a fig. The day my brothers and I found him on the side of the road, where he was hit by a car or truck, we covered him with leaves and sticks, his eyes staring like the dime at the bottom of my pocket. When our four-year-old sister asked why he didn't come home anymore, we told her he ate so many birds he just flew away. For months, every time she went out to play, she'd first stop by the door, shield her eyes with her hands, and look up at the sky. Thank you so much.